All right, here's Acts 12. Parts on the back of your handout. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, or Passover. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door, the gateway of a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and, and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. After Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On one appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. The grass withers, flowers fade, word of our God stands forever. Alright, what I want to do is look at this concept. This is kind of the, the glasses I want you to put on for this passage. That there is a spiritual way of living and there's a worldly way of living. And then we'll look at, at, the, at the kind of power that comes from that. So let me, let me set this up because if you, if you take that big picture passage, I mean that big picture, that King Herod illustrates for us what is worldly living. And by that I mean he lives in such a way that everything is re, that is real is simply this concrete, tangible world. Okay? And Peter and the early Christians illustrate for us spiritual living. Now, before right, we go in, we've got to define it. Because when I say spiritual living, I don't know what that conjures up for you. But for me, usually, 
that brings this sense of like vagueness, kind of this mysterious up there thing that almost feels not real. At least it's not as real as like this or my arm. But according to the Bible, the spiritual world, namely, led by God himself, the Holy Spirit, has everything to do with this concrete, physical, material world that we live in and that God made. But he is unseen. And that the spiritual world is just as real, and you might even say more real, than this, that this is real, and definitely impacts and dictates this world and world history more than you know. And so the, being spiritual, living by the power of the Spirit, is, means you start functioning according to the unseen but real truths of the Bible and of the spiritual world at work. So, maybe this illustration will work. There's this uh, great podcast, actually, Mike Rowe, anybody, Dirty Jobs fans. It's called The Way I Heard It. It's awesome. It's actually called uh, uh, Great uh, Stories for the Curious of Mind with a Short Attention Span. They're only like five minutes. No, so it's awesome. And he tells this story of this true story back in the early 1800s of a, I gotta look at my sheet, of this Hungarian doctor named Ignaz Samuelweis. I'm just going to call him Dr. Iggy, okay? And Dr. Iggy was trying to figure out why the infant mortality rate was so high. Because you had moms and infants dying at a very high rate right in the early 1800s. And what really became perplexing to them was this. Moms and infants were dying at a higher rate in hospitals with doctors than they were at homes with midwives. And nobody could figure it out. There are all these theories like, well, you know, maybe, maybe moms are having them on their side one place and maybe on their back on another. And everybody kept coming up with these theories. And what Dr. Iggy came up with was this. The only thing that he could figure out was that the doctors in the hospitals were doing something midwives were not. They were also doing other surgeries. And they were even doing autopsies. And so he said this, there has got to be something going on where the doctors are transferring what he called little pieces of corpse to the moms. And so he said the solution is you need to wash your hands. And so so that was his theory that he brought forward. And you know what they said? When, When he blamed the doctors, they said, you're crazy. And they put him in the insane asylum. And he committed suicide there. And it was about 20 years later that a guy named Louis Pasteur comes along and dares to suggest there are these things that are unseen to the normal eye called germs or bacteria that is actually dictating this physical world. And he convinced them. And we now know this is true. And people started washing their hands. Okay, take that principle that people refuse to believe that something that was unseen to the naked eye, I I realize germs are, are absolutely material and real, right, and can be seen. But that's the principle that in this chapter, if you take that, that there is something that is unseen to the, to the naked physical eye, but it's real and it's impacting this world. And the question is, do you live according to it? Or will you ignore it? Will you live in denial? That's the paradigm. So, three things. You see, a, you see a spiritual versus worldly situation. 
All right, what can you see about the situation of Herod and, and Peter? Who is Herod? Well, what, if you take on just the worldly perspective, what does he seem to be like? He's a king? If you research it, you realize he's been put in charge of a pretty significant part of the Roman Empire. So he has power. I mean, the chapter opens, he has so much power. At his orders, James is executed. Uh, the first apostle to actually be executed. And then he decides to have Peter arrested. So Peter's arrested and he's waiting to trial and sure execution. And then at the end of the passage, right, so powerful is, is uh, Herod that, uh, that these coastal cities of Tyre and Sinai, they flatter Herod because they so need his approval so that he will grant them food. And so when you pull back that picture, like who is Herod, and you take the snapshot of the visible, here's who he is. He's powerful. He's independent. He's in control. He seems to be utterly secure and has the world at his fingertips. That is the worldly perspective. And what's the worldly perspective of Peter and the church? Well, James is killed right at the hands of Herod. Peter is now in prison, surrounded by guards. He's in chains. He's awaiting execution. And what are the Christians? They are just huddled together in this house, probably scared and praying. And so what is that snapshot? Well, if you just go by what's seen, Peter and the Christians are either dead or helpless, weak, hopeless, overwhelmed, seemingly very insecure and unstable. If we function just to what you can see, that's the truth. But did you see what the author of Acts Luke says? He says that's not the complete picture. Let me show you something. Let me give you a peek behind the curtain into the spiritual, the invisible but real world, and look, is Herod actually powerful, independent, uh, uh, you know, in control and secure? Well, did you notice this? Why does he have James and then Peter executed? Look at verse 3. When he kills James, what did he see? It pleased the Jews. The majority kind of ruling population of that territory, when he saw it pleased them, He said, oh, okay, this will work. So he arrests Peter. So think about that. Amidst all the bravado, all the seeming power and and independence, Herod actually arrests a man and plans to have him kill. Why? Because it made people like him. Because it ensured that he would stay in power. And then you see it again at the end, right? When this food shortage comes, they have Tyre inside, and what, what do they do? They flatter him. They act like Herod's awesome, call him a god. And so he grants it to him. What it implies is that he's going to do it. And so there it is, behind the scenes, when you see the complete picture, this man who seems powerful, independent, and secure, he is deeply insecure. He's deeply unstable. He is not in control. He's actually controlled by the whims of people. He is not independent. He's dependent. Dependent on something as fleeting and changing as people's approval. And it just drives him to kill people. And now at that point when you see that, I hope it does for you what it does for me. That Herod moves from kind of being this cartoon character that's seemingly unrelatable to being sober. Because what this passage is showing is what the Bible teaches quite a bit, that no one in this world 
is actually independent? No one. No one in this place is independent. Everybody is depending on something or someone to live and to make sense of their life. And wherever you're dependent, that is what controls you. So Becky Pippard, an author I'll refer again, here's what she says, listen to this. Who, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. If you process that tonight and examine yourself, that is a big realization. Because some of you, for all the bravado and all the security that you, that you display to navigate Mississippi State, it does. It seems, you seem so secure. You seem so independent. Like you have the world at your fingertips. And the unseen truth is this, and I think you know it on some nights. The unseen truth is this, you are scared. And you're deeply insecure. You think you are controlling what, what people think of you. You think you are managing this picture of who you are. And it's actually controlling you. It's actually enslaving you. You are wasted on Friday nights not because you're so secure and uncaring. You are wasted on Friday nights because you are insecure. And you're actually controlled by what other people think. That's what's going on. The image that you deem essential... It has, a, it has a vice grip on you. And that can come across in so many different, different ways. It's whatever you can't give up. And so you could be the person involved in everything. You could be the person who has to be the life of the party. You could be the person that just has to be the just, good, moral, nice guy. But what you will find is that controls you. It dictates you. And if you want to know what you depend on, it's probably bound up in whatever you worry about all the time. Because I can't lose that. But what about Peter, right? Is he independent? He's actually not. He looks weak. He looks helpless in prison. And he actually is that. The difference between Peter and Herod is not that Peter's this better guy, necessarily, than Herod. I mean, that he ends up being. It's just that he's not in denial. He knows he's dependent, but he's dependent on Jesus. And so is Peter, like, Peter is the night before he's going to be executed. I mean, I think he really believes that. I think everybody knows that. And is he frantic? Is he anxious? He is sleeping. Utterly at peace. We'll get an account a little bit later. We'll get to a few for Paul. Same situation. And Paul is singing. How can circumstances be that ground? And you just fall asleep. It's only if the thing that you trust in is actually unchanging by your circumstances. And that's it. The Christian, by definition, has put their faith in something that is invisible, but it's unchanging. It's this ultimate reality that the sovereign, rich, and unchanging love of Jesus is yours. And it's free. And you receive it by faith. And it does not change on your circumstances. Or it does not change no matter what your life looks like. 
And so that's Luke's first thing. He, he pulls back the curtain and says, I want you to see the full picture of these situations. And then he gives you this contrasting picture of, of the weapons that, that, that each uh, worldly and spiritual people use to try to bring about change. So how does Herod try to influence the world? How does he try to control his life and change the world? Well, you see this. He uses power for violence by killing James. He uses his political and physical power to intimidate people, to arrest Peter. He tries to manipulate situations, right? So to make sure that, that the right people like him all the time so he can stay in power. And it, it kind of works. It works in such a way that, that Tyre and Sidon actually know if they just flatter him enough, this will work. And that makes sense, right? If the only functioning reality I have is that what is real is only what I see, then what are the tools that we'll use to bring about change? Just the stuff that you can do. Right? I will always try to affect change or try to bring about what I desperately need by, by weapons of control, by smooth-talking people, by intimidation, by flattery, by raw effort. Because that's the only thing that seems to work. But what about the church? Like, what is, what's the weapon, if we can say that, that they are using? See, verse 5, Peter goes to prison, and what do they do? They respond with earnest prayer. Verse 12, Peter's out, and what are they still doing in the house? They're praying. It looks silly. It looks weak. I can't even forget, like, if you grew up in the South and you watch somebody pray, it looks weird. And it looks weak. But if there's more to this world than just what you see, then maybe that's what actually living and influencing and change begins to look like. And so, here's the question. Look at your life. What do you really trust? Because if you're not a Christian tonight, okay, awesome you're here. Keep coming. I'm actually, if you've listened this long, I'm thankful you've listened this long. Examine. The only tools you have to bring about change are things that are bound up in you. Your effort, your smooth talk, you outworking somebody. And that's fair. But in the grand scheme of things, would you actually examine and consider, man, like how much control do I really have? It's kind of scary if you consider that. But if you're a professing believer tonight, here's the deal. We all have a theology that we believe. Okay? I believe, whatever, that... Uh, that the Holy Spirit's real and at work and that God is sovereign and that Jesus loves me. But our functional theology, like what we really believe, is shown by how we live. And how much of your life and my life is spent trying to bring about things that you're convinced you desperately need through worldly weapons? By trying to manage people's opinion through flattery. Because, because being honest might mean I lose friendships or I don't get the job. And so we say we believe, if you're a Christian, in Jesus, in this unseen truth that Jesus is King. But when it comes down to it, we just think the weapons of the world work. They just seem more efficient. It seems to win. And Luke says, that's not true. To live that way actually will go against the grain of reality. It'll actually end, we'll come back to this, in more frustration, more exhaustion, more decay, and eventual death. 
So two, two shots of trying to get this apart. Um, all right, first, actually, kind of how many times have I said this or have you heard other people say this? I guess all we can do is pray. And when do we end up saying that? We say that when we've gotten to the end of our rope. In other words, example, right? Let's, let's say there's this relationship in my life that is decaying. I don't know, this relationship with your friend. And it needs to change. What is our first flinch response? How is it going to change? All right, I'm going to talk to some people. I'm going to gather some wisdom. Did I see this right? I'm going to kind of develop a plan maybe about a conversation I'm going to have, uh, you know, with them. Maybe a good book that they can read. All, all that stuff is good. Like, you need to do those things. But if those don't work, right, I guess all we can do is pray. And think what we're saying. That it's only when we finally get helpless do we think, well, I guess we've got to pray. Well, if the primary mover in this world is the Lord through His Spirit, then what about if that overwhelming fear, uh, feeling of helplessness is actually reality all the time? And so what if our first response was actually to pray and then do those things and keep praying because he's the mover in this world, not me. The second, the second name I thought of was, um, I'll just put myself under the, under the gun. This guy named Ian Bounds has this old, uh, old book on prayer. I have this quote on my wall next to where I actually prepare to write sermons for Thursday nights. And here's what it says. It says, why does so much preaching do, do so little in people's lives? You know his answer? Even a sermon will estrange the heart from God by neglect of prayer. The scientist loses God in nature and the preacher can actually lose God in his sermon. See, what he's saying is this. A sermon, for all the preparation and all the work and all the reading, he's not saying that's not important, but he says it is absolutely the neglect of prayer that keeps CERN from changing my heart and then landing with you. And I just don't think that's true. Because I really think if I just come up with a better illustration, or if I just work a little harder on application, that will change. Because because the unseen world isn't real. And look, if if you've been around RUF for a while, you know this. We never just say, hey, here's the answer. Be more disciplined in prayer and read your Bible more. Have a good day. Like, if you've been, that isn't. But look, like, that's actually part of reality. Because there's something about prayer that you are spiritually trusting and saying, I'm a small part of this. And that's reality. And so if things need to change, let's go back to that friend that, that needs to change. You're either going to pray and trust the Holy Spirit to change her, your roommate, or you're still going to need, you're still going to see that she needs to change, and, and you're going to try to change her through your own power, which means you'll try to change her through manipulation, through like cold looks, right, trying to make sure she gets the hint, uh, through power plays, through gossip, through bursts of anger. And that's just, you start realizing true of everything. I'm either going to trust the Spirit or I'm going to trust my own doing. 
And so you see the worldly situation, you see the spiritual situation, you see the, the weapons quickly. What, what's the contrasting results, right? Every, this is, like Luke wants you to see this. Everything that was seemingly true to the naked eye about Herod, that he's, power, he's powerful, he's independent, he's in control, everything gets reversed by the end. Right? When, the, when this, this town looks at him and says, you are God himself, essentially, and he doesn't deflect that, He's struck by an angel, unseen, right? And he dies. Remember, we've seen this throughout Acts. We saw it with Saul. This is a miracle of judgment, okay? And what does a miracle of judgment do? It brings the end, the final end, and it brings it into the now so that you can see it. And what is this showing us? That trying to live independently of God, which is the essence of all sin, always ends in judgment, decay, Death, loss of control. There was a um, there's a guy at Mississippi State actually, former campus minister Ricky Jones. I heard, I've heard him tell this story. Uh, so this was Ricky was at Mississippi State. He was walking to the Union. He sees this guy uh, get off a bus, and he says, "Hey, hey, you know, aren't you the RUF guy?" And Ricky was like, "Yeah." He said, "I want you to know I got converted last week." And Ricky's like, "Great, awesome, you know." How did it happen? RUF? He's like, no, I've never been to RUF. He's <laughs> like, all right. He said, uh, he said, actually, I was in a fight with my roommate uh, who'd been lying to me, and I was so mad. I took my, you know, I took my bottle of uh, Maker's Mark and I just smashed it against the wall. And the glass splintered back on my hand, and, and, it, and it just bloodied me up. And so I was just so mad. I went for a walk. My hand was bandaged. And then this is what he said. I started realizing that any time that I try to make somebody pay for what they did, it, it hurts me. He says, I thought about that. I actually remembered something I heard at church a long time ago. Because he said, you know, I think I remember that they told me that any time I break God's commands, it actually hurts me. I started thinking back that relationships get hurt when I lie. Relationships get hurt through sexual immorality. And so I kind of think, man, maybe this is true. And then he said, oh no, the Bible's true. I don't have a chance. And then he said, wait a second. That's why Jesus had to die. And he was converted. And this is what Acts 12 is saying, that the unseen spiritual truth of God, His ways, His reality, it's just true. And if you buck against that, you're splintering yourself. And Acts 12 lovingly pulls back the the veil and says, look. If you try to live independently of God, it'll always lead to unraveling destruction and eventual judgment. I think if you're honest, you can taste bits of that right now. Because some of you are exhausted by flattery, by trying to manage everybody's opinion of you. And that echo of loneliness that you feel at night when you realize nobody knows the real you, That's the threat of unraveling. That's the splintering that begins to happen. When you start realizing that the the destruction and the pain in this world is partly because of me, because I make people pay, I I return violence with shame and manipulation, I keep the cycle going, that's the realization. But what's the spiritual result to Peter? Yes, it's miraculous. Yes, it's extraordinary. Right? And presumably, people prayed for James when he went to prison and he dies. But what happens to Peter? 
It's showing you what ultimately is true for all of those who trust Jesus. Peter's asleep. He has to str- uh, this angel strikes him. He thinks he's dreaming. Chains fall off. He gets dressed. He moves past these presumably sleeping guards. Doors open. And then he finally realizes, wow, I'm, I'm, it's real. I'm like free. And what do you see? The complete reversal. That what you thought was true about Peter, in chains, hopeless, cons- uh, constrained to death, he's actually free, alive, full of joy. Why? Because what dictates reality is not just what you see, but what is unsaid. And this is the Christian life. Look, if you're wondering what the Christian life looks like, you've been living it for a while, this is it. It is simple. And look, simple does not mean easy. Right? The concept of staying in shape and losing weight, simple. Right? Eat less calories than you burn. Easy, right? No. Incredibly hard. But simple concept. The Christian life is just this. Faith and repentance. That's it. That I try to live according to what is true, though it's unseen. That was created by and, and for the triune God and that His promises are real and His character is always good. And so I can trust Him. And repentance is just this. That I constantly and quickly as possible, turn again and again from my worldly and independent desires, thoughts, and actions back to Jesus. And so, sexual acts with someone who is not your spouse, they feel life-giving. They do. They're fun. It seems like they'll lead to to freedom. But faith and repentance says, no, I will turn and trust the one who created sex and loves me. And live out of that. Lying and manipulating. It feels like it will keep me safe. It feels like it will ensure my future. But by faith and repentance. I turn and trust Jesus. Truth himself. Because he is life. I want to hold a grudge. I, I, I want to hold a grudge. It feels good to hold a grudge. It makes me feel better than people. But it just continues the decay and violence of this world. And so we turn to Jesus. Receive his forgiveness. And out of that. We forgive people. It's just faith and repentance. So what's the key? And I'll end quickly here. You've been very patient. Maybe that all sounds nice. How in the world do you give the power, get the power to live spiritually? First, you have to have the Holy Spirit. Because only He can give you eyes to see. But what does it look like for the Holy Spirit to, to be functioning in your life? His primary job is to reveal Jesus. God become flesh. And here's how we live. You receive and sit in this invisible truth. How can you know that you're right with God? How can you know that your prayers are heard? Because sometimes life just feels, prayer feels weird. How can you know your prayers are heard when your life is more of a mess than you thought it would be at age 21? And you realize you're a bigger sinner than you thought. Well, the author of Acts also wrote Luke. And this is what Allie read for us. There's one other time that he uses this Greek adverb that he used in verse 5 to describe them, the church earnestly praying. And it's in Luke 22. And it's describing another man who's about to be arrested on the night of Passover. And he's out in the Garden of Gethsemane and he is earnestly praying. And he's praying so earnestly that he begins to sweat drops of blood. It's Jesus. And do you know what he's praying? 
He's praying to avoid suffering. He is saying, if possible, let this cup pass from me. What's the cup? It's not the suffering of the whips and the beating and even the nails in the hands, though as horrible as that is. It's the suffering of the cup of his father's wrath that is the penalty for, for live, trying to live independently of God. And he says that there's another way. There's another way that I can have my people with me give it to me. And God's silence says no. And so he goes to the cross and he, he bears our sin and bears our judgment. The cup of God's wrath. He takes the ultimate suffering. And it is only, only by faith when you trust that truth, the historical act, but that is, yes, you could have seen if you were standing there, but the reality of what was going on was, some, was, was invisible, that God's wrath was being poured out on Jesus in your place. That's the only thing that will keep you convinced that God is for you. That's the only thing that will convince that your prayers are being heard even if it doesn't feel like it, because Jesus received the cosmic no in your place. And so God will never give you the cosmic no. He is for you. And so i got to end with this, because I think this is hilarious. You know how you know you're living according to spiritual power? You're, like, surprised all the time. Did you notice this in the passage? Right, Peter gets arrested. There's this group of Christians who earnestly pray, sound like nonstop. What are they praying for? They're praying for the Lord to intervene and save Peter. So they're praying, and Peter shows up, the answer of their prayer, to the door and knocks. And the servant girl named Rhoda answers the door. She's so overjoyed, she goes back and says, Hey, Peter is here. Prayer's answered. And what do they say? We knew it. We knew this would work. They say... You are out of your mind. They say, right, quote, realize, you're crazy, girl. <laughs> and she doubles down. And she says, no, it's true. And they say, it's got to be an angel. That is hilarious. Like, they are praying earnestly, and they say there's no, there's no way, that, a more probable explanation, this has got to be Peter's angel. And it's the very thing that they were praying for. And I love this, because this is real life. So have you ever really prayed for something, you're kind of like, this really work? Like, this is kind of crazy. And so I want to end by reading this. This is from a book, Out of the Salt Shaker by Becky Pipper. I actually heard Brian Habig reference this. I have the book as well. Here's what she says. This, this, this honestly is the final thing. And it's, it's basically her account of how, trying to learn how to be a witness for Jesus, though she's bad at it. And she was in Barcelona, Spain, and so somebody encouraged her just because she had, had so much work with college. And she said, hey, just, just like start a group. They'll discuss the Bible and Jesus with people who have questions. She's like, okay. So she starts doing that. And they're they're having a good time. She's making friends. And finally, at one point, a Christian in the group actually challenged her and says, look, you at some point need to ask, like, what is actually keeping you from becoming a Christian? She's like, okay, I guess I'll do that. So she thought through the group, and she thought about the most impossible, unlikely person, right, to be a Christian. There was this atheist who actually she really liked. They were friends. Uh, His name was Todd. And she's like, I, I decided to start with him because there's no way he's going to become a Christian. So this will be easy. And so they met for coffee in Barcelona. Here's what happens. Here's their account. I said, Todd, you've been part of this discussion all semester. You've heard a lot about God. You've never decided what to do with God. Hey, one of these days you're going to have to decide. Sooner or later, God is going to speak to you and say, decide now. 
And what are you going to say? And then she said, I was actually feeling so proud and encouraged that I said something firm, even though my comments stemmed from the fact that there was no way he would respond, that I failed to notice how serious his face became. And Todd said, you're right. God is speaking. And I'm saying yes. And she said she kept talking. She didn't even hear him. She said, Todd, you're going to have to make a decision one of these days when you stand before God. And Todd said, God has been speaking to me right now. And I say yes. And she said, Todd, don't scare me like that. Todd, and he said, Becky, I'm not kidding. I've been thinking about this for a long time and I'm ready now. Todd, listen to me. You can't rush into this. This is a huge decision. It'll, it'll change your life so much. You better think this over. Becky, this isn't an emotional decision. I know I put up a good front, but I've been thinking about God for a long time. I want to become a Christian. Right here? Like right in the restaurant in front of everybody? Todd, I can't do this. Why not? Because I've never done anything like this before. Like, this is the real conversation. And so I said, don't worry, I haven't either. <laughs> i tell you what, let's close our eyes, I'll say something to God, and then you do, and it'll be over in just a few minutes. And so they prayed, and said she opened her eyes nervously, and she was so scared. She was so scared that he's going to feel this pressure to, like, immediately feel different. She said, hey, Todd, you don't have to feel anything different right now. And Todd said, I feel totally different. And she said, I looked at him in shock and said, Todd, oh my goodness, it works. <laughs> like... I, like, I love that account so much because that's real life. Like, that displays spiritual power because what dictates world history, what dictates you being right with God and that you'll be seen to the end is just not simply how well you pray. It's not how good your faith is or how good you've been or how well you trust Him every day. It's this. It's how much He loves you. And how faithful He is. And that He is promising to make all things new. And we keep stumbling. And we keep sinning. And we keep fumbling and praying and forgiving and reading and listening to God's Word. And trying to believe the promises. Trying to live live according to what's true. And unseen. And it's just hard. And I don't know where you are tonight. But you are dependent. And you are weak. The question is, what are you depending on? What are you trusting in? Is it strong? Is it stable? Is it good? Jesus is. If you know Him, it is well with your soul. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for, yeah, just what's hard to believe. uh, Because it is unseen. But You love us so much that You would die for us, take our sin, give us Your righteousness, and love us with a never-stopping, never-giving-up love. Would You bring us to believe that for the first time or the thousandth time tonight? In Jesus' name, amen.